Alrighty, hello everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the most exciting show on Colin by far. That is not even disputed by anyone. So, uh, sometimes I admit I feel like I'm going a little bit nuts because even in just the past 48 hours, it seems like there has been at least three or four just insane, almost jaw-dropping developments in this whole Ukraine, potentially World War III type scenario. And you look out on the media landscape, which... I guess I I also admit that I haven't been analyzing as comprehensively as I might otherwise uh, because I just don't see real urgency. I don't see any sense of some sort of crisis underway that needs to be averted. Um, And it does not seem consistent with the facts. So, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people in this room are going to be familiar with the facts, to some degree, but here's the one, here are the ones that I'm talking about. Number one, yesterday, the New York Times is given information, as usual, from unnamed U.S. intelligence sources. And the ensuing article really is an admission against interest, right? Because it's not as though you would think, at least in theory, U.S. government factions would want this information out there unless it was absolutely necessary in some fashion. But they put out this conclusion, apparently, that the U.S. intelligence agencies have reached, which is that Ukraine's, the Ukraine government, or elements within their Ukraine government were, in fact, responsible for the car bomb assassination attack on the daughter of Dugan, you know, the Russian philosopher outside Moscow in August. Now, of course, this was speculated as a possibility when it happened, but theories were going around about how it could be, you know, a false flag or something. Uh, Well, according at least to the U.S. intelligence agencies, which then deliberately chose to promulgate this conclusion by way of the New York Times, uh, they're of the belief that it was, in fact, the Ukraine government since it appears to have been a sabotage-style explosion attack, and since we know such attacks were committed by the Ukraine government in Crimea over the summer, uh, could this have any bearing on the culpability for that uh, pipeline explosion attack? I <laughs> uh, don't know, uh, but it's certainly conceivable. So that's fact number one. Fact number two is that today... Zelensky um, called for preemptive strikes against Russia to disarm Russia's nuclear capabilities. That's what Zelensky called for. People have been screaming about the translations and stuff. I got that translation direct from the horse's mouth in that it was from like the wire service English language wire service used in Ukraine itself, um, and even hardcore pro-Ukraine, 
I would have to say state propagandists have confirmed that this is what Zelensky said in calling for preemptive strikes. So that's basically the U.S. client in this situation. Zelensky, who's getting, as far as we know, unlimited support, unlimited backing financially and militarily. He's now out there demanding what I think would have to be classified as something approximating the initiation of World War III. It wouldn't be surprising if he were to make this call for World War III because he did so at the beginning of the war when he waged this protracted international lobbying offensive to demand in the most searing emotional terms of the U.S., of Canada, of Britain, of even Australia and Israel, um, the imposition of a no-fly zone in Ukraine, which everyone basically universally acknowledged would by definition have to bring about the initiation of direct warfare between the United States and Russia, and therefore World War III. Joe Biden himself said that this would be World War III. Okay, so that's, that's number two. Uh, number three is that uh, The Intercept put out an article in which they pretty blatantly, quote, buried the lead, to use a journalistic cliche that I don't tend to like to use, but I don't know. How else to put it? Uh, Because The Intercept had this article where in like the – at the midway point, they get around to revealing, (laughs) you know, based on sources that Biden has issued what's called a presidential covert action finding uh, authorizing – Secret U.S. military operations inside Ukraine itself. So not on the border, not doing arms supply logistics on the periphery of Ukraine, inside Ukraine itself. Now, of course, that could have been surmised by a lot of by people. It was speculated rampantly by lots of people. Certainly, it occurred to me that that could very well be the case, but... As far as I know, and somebody can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I do not know of this being ever so firmly reported in just plain text up until yesterday. Um, And it turns out that this order has been in effect for months since presumably the beginning of the war. Uh, We don't have any insight based on this Intercept article as to what these special forces have actually been doing inside Ukraine. There are plausible theories as to what they might have been up to. I doubt they were just kind of, they've just been kind of casually hanging out. Um, And, you know, could it be the case that they're engaged in combat operations much more directly than has been admitted? I think that could conceivably been the case. Obviously, we would need evidence. But, you know, would anyone be shocked if that were to turn out to be true. I mean, the pattern over the course of this U.S. military intervention, just like so many others over the years, is that, you know, the full truth gets willfully concealed in real time. And only in retrospect do even slivers of uh, information get reported and circulated. Um... And so 
the public is not able to make fully informed real-time determinations about the propriety of U.S. policy. Um, that's nothing new. Uh, but what is slightly new is that everybody seemed to assume, or at least like conventional liberal opinion and even a lot of left-wing opinion, you know, conservative, moderate opinion as well. Across the spectrum, there was a pretty, you know, <laughs> there has been and still is a extremely uh, heartfelt conviction that this U.S. military intervention, and we have to call it that at this point now, um, is going to be the first one in U.S. history that is accurately and truthfully portrayed to the public, and its full nature has been you know, honestly presented for citizens to evaluate. For some reason, all of U.S. history was going to be negated, and this is going to be the first time that that uh, happened with the military intervention this year in 2022. Well, that's not the case. Uh, we already know that at least just on that one ground, meaning the issuance by Biden of the secret order, uh, that shows that the intervention was on – that was a false, false pretense on which the intervention was launched, that there would be no, quote, boots on the ground. Uh, Biden said that repeatedly. If you have any knowledge of even very recent history, you'll know that assurances about the non-deployment of boots on the ground by presidents are worth about whatever you know press release paper they're written on. Uh, Obama said the same thing, even just about Syria, uh, during when the when forces were deployed uh, for the ISIS war starting in 2014. Uh, by 2016, the U.S. was sustaining direct combat casualties. In Syria, and I think the soldiers killed in action, the American soldiers killed in action in Syria were probably wearing boots and they were probably walking on the ground. Um, and I don't know, maybe the boots, maybe the, the special forces that have been in Ukraine all this time now uh, are wearing slippers or maybe they've been floating in the air and not on the ground. But I think you know we can be reasonably assured that boots on the ground would encompass whatever these individuals are up to. Um, so that's number three. Um, and then, you know, overarching all that, which I guess is not so much a factual development as, as like an analytical development, and which, by the way, Joe Biden just reaffirmed as I started this calling, is this fairly extensive uh, acknowledgement that the level of nuclear risk facing the U.S. and, you know, much of the wider world right now is uh, higher than at any point it's been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, if you're familiar with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I'm not claiming to be the world's leading expert on it, but I've, you know, read enough about it to get the gist. I'm almost confused as to why people are so lackadaisical. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis was just, the more you know about it, the more harrowing it gets as to how close we were to, how close, you know, civilization was to annihilation. And for those people just have this blasé attitude. And to say that, okay, yeah, maybe we're at Cuban Missile Crisis levels, and even now Joe Biden is saying this publicly, which he did today apparently on a fundraiser, that the risk is as high as it's been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, all that being, that, that, that may be the case, but... This has nothing to do with U.S. policy, of course. I mean, the, 
proposal that I've been trying to make to people to hammer this point is that, okay, so why is it that the U.S. is being targeted, or why, why are nuclear threats being targeted at the U.S. right now, as opposed to, say, Brazil, right? The U.S. is clearly at heightened nuclear risk right now compared to Brazil. Well, why is that? Well, I think the only thing that really separates the U.S. and Brazil in terms of why the nuclear risk will be relatively higher in the U.S. is because of U.S. policy. Because U.S. policy in Ukraine, i.e. operationally coordinating and subsidizing a war effort against the country with the world's largest nuclear arsenal, that's a policy which the U.S. has effectuated and which Brazil has not. So I would think that's probably the explanation for why the U.S. is at the heightened nuclear risk as opposed to Brazil. Seems pretty simple, but that, <laughs> that simple, I think, indisputable logic really is hard to come by in much of the popular depictions of the current predicament. Um, and so, you know, taking all that together... Sometimes I feel like I'm going a little bit crazy because it seems like nobody really is particularly – nobody else is – I'm not saying nobody else. But it seems like the enormity of what apparently is the, the, are the facts at hand at the moment are not being appreciated sufficiently. <laughs> um, and I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm just delusional. Um, you know, I did have a Substack article uh, that came out earlier tonight um, where – I got into some of the implications that have can be found in this new documentary by uh, Ken Burns. Um, now, I, I, when I kind of got into the World War II rabbit hole recently, uh, people were lecturing me that I needed to learn my lesson about the true meaning of World War II and sit down and watch this documentary that coincidentally had just come out a couple weeks ago produced by Ken Burns, who, you know, I think is every uh, hist uh, history, high school history teacher's favorite documentarian. Um, he had this new documentary out on, uh, called The Holocaust, uh, U.S. and the Holocaust. Uh, it's about seven hours. So, yeah, I sat and watched it. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad I did, as I write in the Substack article, because it's a very useful barometer of conventional wisdom um, because it's not just this by, ha by happenstance Ken Burns decided to do a documentary on the US and the Holocaust right because he just had this natural inquisitiveness as to that historical subject no he Ken Burns says himself that the whole point of why he did this documentary and why he actually accelerated the production schedule to release it right now is so that people draw parallels, draw explicit parallels between the lessons such as they're presented in the, in the documentary uh, of, you know, the Holocaust and World War II in terms of what it implies for today. That was the purpose. And so if you look at just the review to the commentary around the documentary, people were saying, yeah, I mean, hopefully we're, uh, the, United, the United States is not quite at Nazi Germany levels today, but we're getting, we're getting there. And also, by the way, there's a Hitler-esque madman on the loose and Putin in Ukraine is trying to do Holocaust 2.0 and therefore we need to internalize the you know, never-again logic that Ken Burns so vividly 
presents in the documentary, uh, to understand that this must inform our policy approach today with regard to Ukraine. Uh, and so, you know, basically the whole point of this documentary, again, is almost as like a moral parable that is meant to have like direct policy implications. And so the reason why I sort of I, uh, describe the documentary as revisionist history in the article is because you know, it is in this key respect. Ken Burns does what a lot of sort of pop historians of the World War II era do, which is that he does a very brief interlude, uh, maybe not too brief, it was, I don't know, maybe a quarter or so of one of the three sort of installments of the documentary on, you know, quote-unquote isolationist sentiment during World War II in the run-up, you know, before Pearl Harbor, before the U.S. formally entered in December of 1941. And... If you even have a faint familiarity with the sort of pop history of this time period, you'll you could probably very easily guess which figure Ken Burns chooses to fixate on as representative of non-interventionist sentiment during that time period. And of course, that's Charles Lindbergh. So as is so common in these pop historical depictions, uh, Ken Burns presents deliberately, you have to think, the impression that all non-interventionist sentiment in the World War II era can be summed up in the personage of Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh is solely and exclusively representative of non-interventionist sentiment in World War II. And why is it that Char- that uh, Ken Burns would highlight a Lindbergh-type figure as being representative in this respect? Well, because Burns shows us that Lindbergh had all kind of wacky uh, racial views, uh, that he was, you know, he gives a radio address that Lindbergh, or that uh, Burns shows where Lindbergh says that the reason the U.S. doesn't have an interest in the European war is because, you know, the survival of the white race is not on the line, and therefore, why bother to take an interest? Um, he's got an affinity for Nazi Germany, according to Burns. Uh, his wife thinks Hitler is a great man. Um, and this is the only non-interventionist individual, the only individual who espoused non-interventionist sentiment that Burns highlights, that Burns mentions at all. So what do you take away from that if you're just a casual viewer who's not from, uh, acquainted with the history? Wow, people who opposed... U.S. entry to World War II prior to Pearl Harbor, it was just a bunch of Lindberghian bigots, right? Or, you know, literally, who were literally pro-Hitler. That was the sum total of non-interventionist sentiment during that time period. Why is that revisionist history? It's just so mind-bogglingly misleading. So misleading that it would have to be a deliberate choice to mislead that flagrantly. Because if you do any kind of honest study of the non-interventionist movement or people who espoused non-interventionist sentiment in that period. You know, of course, yeah, Charles Lindbergh was a prominent figure, but that was so far from the totality of the non-interventionist sentiment at that time that it's not even funny. You know, I I did a whole um, 
review of the polling data, much of which is actually uh, suspiciously buried. I had to spend a lot of time going through like ancient academic texts uh, to find that you know su- huge super majorities of just uh, all Americans throughout 1941, all up until Pearl Harbor, during the period where you know we're told that Lindbergh is the you know exemplar of non-intervention of sentiment. Something like 88 percent, you know, 72 percent, 79 percent, consistent, overwhelming supermajorities of Americans oppose entering World War II during this time period. Now, is that because they're all crypto fascists or they're secret Nazi lovers or they're raging anti-Semites? I don't know. There might be a portion, a small-ish portion of people who were of that mindset. But – 88% of Americans? Could it be the case that maybe lots of Americans just did not want to be conscripted into another world war and go fight and die in it? I don't know. That sounds plausible to me, where they didn't want their sons and fathers and brothers and so forth to do so. I don't know. That seems like the likelier explanation to me rather than everyone's just consumed with wild, crazed racial hatred, and that's why they didn't want to enter World War II. <laughs> um, but, you know, all that 88 percent of America, that gets distilled into Charles Lindbergh by Ken Burns. So that's revisionist history, number one. And also, even if you're just going on prominent figures of the era, the idea that Lindbergh is the only person you dwell upon, that's, again, it's a conscious editorial choice to distort the historical record, which I would think is the definition of revisionism, at least as people popularly use it. You know, as sort of like a, a criticism that it's like a it's like a willful misrepresentation of history. This is a willful misrepresentation of history, and if Burns didn't do it willfully, then he's an utter incompetent who shouldn't really be treated as any kind of authoritative, uh, you know, chronicler of anything to do with World War II. Uh, because some of the most prominent left wing figures of the era, literally a, a cross section of the actual most prominent left-wing figures of the time were ardent non-interventionists. I've, I've talked quite a bit about Norman Thomas, who was the most prominent socialist figure in the country for you know, many years. Six-time Socialist Party presidential candidate. Maybe the most, one of the most vociferous opponents of U.S. entry into World War II and could not in any conceivable way ever be called a Nazi or a fascist or whatever. Lindberghian. Uh, the most pr- powerful left-wing labor leader, arguably, at the time, John L. Lewis, United Mine Workers, was a staunch uh, critic of Roosevelt on war policy and campaigned against U.S. entry to World War II. You had the editor of the Partisan Review, the most, you know, an extremely influential, uh, you know, left-wing intellectual journal, uh, edited by Dwight McDonald. Dwight McDonald put out a quote-unquote isolationist manifesto in July of 1941 where he castigates Roosevelt for aligning with Stalin. So this is a socialist, McDonald, castigating Roosevelt for aligning with the Soviet Union, and McDonald stakes out at a, you know, what would now be called an isolationist position. Kurt Vonnegut wrote a letter wrote a column for his, uh, for the Cornell da- uh, newspaper where he, he was a student espousing a opposition to U.S. entry into World War II in very, you know, crotchety and uh, vivid terms. 
um, you know, Dorothy Day, who is, you know, the founder of the uh, Catholic Worker newspaper, was just an ideological pacifist. And she's heralded today. She even opposed U.S. entry into World War II after Pearl Harbor, which was uncommon among even the non-interventionists. Um, and on and on and on. I mean, there's so many figures. Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Sinclair Lewis, John F. Kennedy get, sent $100 to the America First Committee that is now so reviled as this bastion of you know, racial hatred and bigotry. Uh, and told them that they were doing something incredibly important by advocating against U.S. entry into the war in Europe. Gerald Ford was a founding member of the America First Committee. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on. C. Wright Mills, who was a a sociologist uh, who wrote a number of incredibly influential works and is basically generally considered to be a founder of what's called like the new left intellectual tradition. He was an opponent of entering World War II. Um, so if, if, if you're, you know, the editor of the Nation magazine, um, Villard, his name is, was an arduous opponent of entering World War II and never relinquished that position at all. Uh, okay, so these are some of the most... These are like the top people at the top left-wing institutions in the country taking this non-interventionist position. And for some reason, in the Ken Burns telling of this history, they're totally omitted. And who's included? Who's exclusively included? Who's the only person included? It's Charles Lindbergh. Because what Ken Burns, you'd have to conclude, is seeking to do is to cast, quote-unquote, isolationists as these Nazis and racists. Um and to cast isolationist philosophy as inherently the purview of, isol- of uh, Nazis and racists, and to import that understanding of quote-unquote isolationism into the present political context. Thereby, anyone who has the current version of an isolationist view or a non-interventionist view vis-a-vis Ukraine is pro-fascist, pro-Putin, pro-even Nazis somehow. And this is stated explicitly as what the express purpose of the documentary was. I mean, they did a big European premiere of it a couple uh, weeks ago in Berlin, and the U.S. ambassador to Germany announced it as showing why it is that we must, quote, support Ukraine meaning support current U.S. policy on Ukraine, which is leading the country into, you know, which is, uh, to put it mildly, a contributing factor in why even Joe Biden now says the very strong potential for nuclear destruction is upon us. Um, so that's the openly stated purpose of this documentary and for it to just be so casually recommended to everyone. Uh, you know, it needs to be scrutinized because it's not like they're trying to conceal what the purpose of the documentary is. The purpose of the documentary is to foment support for the status quo of U.S. policy in Ukraine. This is one of the purposes anyway. And, you know, plenty of the reviewers and plenty of the viewers got the message loud and clear, including 
representatives of the U.S. government who have been promoting this. I mean, there's this woman, Deborah Lipstadt, who is one of the featured you know, historian es- experts in the movie who's literally a member of the Biden administration right now. And literally attempting to put forward a very particular interpretation of historical events where she's castigating isolationists. Uh, and then that castigation of isolationists is resurrected as newly relevant today with respect to Ukraine. And something, this is not that subtle. Uh, and for it to be pointed out by no one, you know, given this incredible situation we're in right now, uh, the enormity of which I think should be self-evident. Um, you know, I'm just amazed that no one has had the urge to remark upon it. So, you know, uh, again, maybe I'm going a little crazy here, but uh, I hope I'm not alone in feeling like I'm being a bit gaslit in, in uh, observing that there seems to be a marked underappreciation of uh, the gravity of present events. If even the president, Joe Biden, who's responsible for the policy being implemented in Ukraine, is responsible for signing off on this secret order to launch spe- uh, secret military operations in Ukraine, And even he is now saying that we're in a Cuban Missile Crisis scenario. Who else needs to say it for people to accept that it's at least somewhere in the ballpark of reality? I mean, I don't get it. Um, Maybe someone could explain it to me. Um, So with that, if anybody has a thought, comment, whatever, uh, feel free to join the uh, queue. But, uh, you know, if not, okay. Hello, uh, Heidi. Hi. Um, it's interesting that this is the subject for your uh, gathering of experts today because I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about how the Nazis Ukraine are put into power, but the Nazis that are in Russia are put into prison. And I was given a couple links for a couple different situations that have happened recently. I guess the Uzbekis are targeted by some of the um, fascist groups that are in Russia. And they are uh, sought and arrested and imprisoned and tried and imprisoned um, for what they do. They're not elevated to the levels of power like the people in Azov and Svoboda, um, which I found amusing. And then another thing that uh i i noticed was or or i've i've been told and given links to was that i had heard in the past that homosexuals were targeted for harassment and bullying and uh whatever by you know the police or the government in russia and this uh friend of mine sent me links of you know like vk profiles of of flamboyant um, homosexuals. Not, I mean, they're not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but he says that they're all over the place and nobody bothers them. And then, uh, <laughs> along that same line of thinking, I remember very specifically that when Ukraine had their, um, uh, draft that there were, um, transgender women who were being, uh, um, 
caught by uh, what, uh, charged with treason or something like that. I, I can't remember the specifics, but basically the government of Yeah, Ukraine, I don't think they were charged with treason, but yeah, they were penalized in some way because their status as women was not recognized in their obligation to, you know, acquiesce to the Ukraine government's conscription. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So my point is, is that, you know, how they say that the first casualty of war is, is truth. And it seems to me that everything that we are hearing is the exact opposite of the truth. And everything that it turned that turns out to be the truth is actually ironic. You know, like it's um, in your face. Uh, uh, it, it, it just blows my mind. And this whole thing now with, you know, nuclear war being um, on the table, you know, to me, it's, this is all due to Zelensky's ego or fear or whatever. And well, his ego wouldn't matter if he wasn't. But I mean, Heidi, just to interject real quick, his ego wouldn't matter if he weren't a U.S. client, if he weren't being limitlessly supplied with weaponry and state subsidy. And if he weren't back to the hilt by the U.S., he could just be another, you know, unhinged uh, world leader and it wouldn't make much of a difference. The reason why it's consequential is because he enjoys the full unreserved backing of the world's largest military and economic power, which is the U.S. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I posted earlier today that Ukraine has a lower GDP, or at least did. I don't know what it is now with the war. It's probably even lower. Ukraine has a lower GDP than Kansas. So the idea wow. that people are poo-poo the significance of the U.S. subsidizing and orchestrating the entire war effort, and as we now know, also deploying U.S. military operations to Ukraine itself, people that the idea that the other people dismiss the significance of this and say, "Oh, it's all about the agency of Ukraine." Okay, yeah, sure. Um, uh, if they ha- only had their own agency to work with, uh, I'm sure you know that would have gone well for them. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And it's because of the neocon warmongers in our own government. They want this chance to like face off with Russia. I get it. You know, I, I, you're absolutely correct. But I guess my point is, is that the, the leftist movement in America, you know, the people who are behind Bernie and really wanted to see good changes happen. They've been played hook, line and sinker into supporting Ukraine on all these false premises. You know what I mean? And, and it's just it it blows my mind, and I just wish people would seek more of more of the truth instead of just randomly uh, ag- agreeing w- with you know the, the our government playing this woke agenda to uh, spin it. You know that that's what's just it's blowing my mind. So that that's all I really had to say. I I, I know what you mean. One benefit of having done this deep dive into World War II history lately as, you know, as a sort of a window into current events is that I'm increasingly convinced that your last sort of concluding point there where people on the left, people who are Bernie supporters, they've been duped into this pro-war stance. I don't think that's quite the right way to put it uh, because contrary to what a lot of people seem to think, there really is nothing inherently inconsistent with between being put on the left and being pro-war because there was a huge left-wing contingent left and liberal contingent uh, in the 30s and 40s 
for the U.S. to enter the war in Europe. It was an adamant pro-war stance among factions of the left. Now, factions of the left oppose it as well, but I'm saying this has been a tendency on the left, uh, among left liberals for a long time. It's not some new invention or it's not some concoction of neocons who co-opted the left. Obviously, that's happening to some degree now, but that's not like intrinsically what's at stake here, I don't think, or what the, what's at issue here. Um, there was a very similar logic in the run-up to 1941, or in the run-up to Pearl Harbor, rather, where the U.S. was seen to be this, quote, arsenal of democracy. That's what Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt said. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt is considered the most, you know, I guess you could say left of a sort uh, president that the U.S. has had, at least on domestic policy in some respects. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, there was this the, – the, the ideological backdrop was that the U.S. military, the U.S. government was the vehicle by which the U.S. was going to preserve democracy around the world, fight authoritarianism, defeat fascism, uh, and defeat, like, foreign imperialism. And it, the, the, it's almost eerie how very similar logic is uh, today that animates these left-wing factions who are ardently pro-war. So when people say that, you know, if – to the extent that there are left-wing, uh, you know – People now who today who are very pro-war, and that's somehow an inconsistency. I don't think so. I think there have just always been these left-wing tendencies that, of their very nature, are inclined toward uh, war to some extent. Uh, you know, I, in the article that I did today, I, I uh, mentioned that Pete Seeger was, for a time, campaigning against U.S. entry to the war. Uh, he was you know, putting out folk albums where he was, you know, uh, lambasting Roosevelt for you know being a warmonger and trying to draft him and his friends and how he wasn't going to go fight anywhere and, and and all the rest and then all of a sudden one day in June of 1941 the war, war breaks out between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and Seeger just renounces his anti-war stance and literally just follows the Communist Party USA edict and decides to become ardently pro-war. Uh, so now you know it was. Seeger duped? I mean, I don't know. I just know that there's been a long history of this. Um, and so people shouldn't be shocked by it or she, people should just kind of, I don't know, reckon with it on its own terms rather than thinking it has to be some sort of, uh, you know, misunderstanding as to why it's so common today. I, I get that. And, and I I can see there's, there's a you know, a tendency on the left to want to use government to make the changes and they want to force it on people sometimes. So, you know, you're not at all, at all off base with that line of, uh, you know, or, or that direction of your uh, focus. And I agree with, with you completely, but I guess what I'm, I kind of, you know, I, I, don't, I can't remember what your stance on coronavirus and, you know, like the mask and vaccine mandates, but to me, it all kind of tied in because uh, it happened, you know, kind of boom, boom, boom. You know, like I was completely against any kind of government mandates. I, I didn't have a problem with it if people wanted to get a vaccine or wear a mask. But I knew, you know, just from my own, I, I, I have a, a history in biology. I was, I worked in healthcare. I knew that the masks were relatively ineffective when it came to an airborne virus like that. And so I didn't care to wear one. Um, and cloth masks are actually harmful because they retain the moisture and the bacteria and you breathe it back in, you get bacterial pneumonia. I don't know if you know of any of the studies on that. But anyway, I, and I don't want to go uh, too deep into that, but my point is is that it, it kind of just happened, you know, like it was it was COVID, 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 masks, 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 vaccines, vaccines, Ukraine. 
And now we're looking at nuclear war. You know what I mean? Like it just, it feels like a play. And, and you're right. You know, it's not, it's not that people were, uh, it's not like it, it was pro one big psyop or anything. I don't think the CIA is that sophisticated or anything like that. I don't think they can control it that precisely. I'm just saying that I think there were, there are a lot of people that are just too busy and too desperate and they only hear parts the bits and parts that the government is not censoring, that they're the bits and parts that we're being allowed to hear, you know, and I wish your audience were millions, but unfortunately all the people here already know all these things. I'm preaching to the choir. Right. Well, and we can go out in our daily lives and talk to people. Of course, you know, hopefully it will exponentially increase, you know, the reach of it, but, and that's all we can do. And, and hopefully we can, like, get more people to say, no, we don't need nuclear war. You know what I mean? Like, this yeah. is a really bad idea. Yeah. I mean, the funniest COVID connection to this nuclear war stuff today to me is, generally speaking, the same people who were hyper-cautious about COVID and were hyper-moralistic about the need to be hyper-cautious about COVID – seem to be the most blasé about the prospect of nuclear war. Seem to be the yes. most risk. Yes. So they were the most risk averse during COVID and they're the most risk tolerant now during nuclear war. So like, what's their actual baseline of risk acceptance? I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> oh, my dad always says I got to find a way to laugh. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Heidi. Uh, All right. Bye. Hey, Phil, you're up. Uh, I was, uh, wonder if we, it is kind of weird. <laughs> so we all think we're being gaslit all the time right now, but found, you know, on your, uh, World War II odyssey, uh, you know, it, it just made me start thinking, was that our last conversation and you're trying to imagine what, what is going on here? And, uh, it made me think of a couple of things. One is, uh, that coincides with what uh, you and uh, you were just talking about. Uh, it's kind of an infantilization of politics in some way or, or world events. Uh, and by that, I mean, uh, it, it removes any kind of thought about nuance. You know, it's good, evil. It's all binary. Uh, who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys? If they've turned World War II into like a cartoon morality tale or like a fable or a parable or something, and that, that's but, but, but that's what they intended to be. Yeah. It's everything. I had a conversation. I it's everything, but World War, II, World War II is the most powerful analogy sure. that they can invoke as relates to current events. I mean, it's invoked. How many times a day? I mean, I don't know how many times a day I see Neville Chamberlain brought up. <laughs> or appeasement, or annexation of Sudetenland, or Hitler not. I mean, it's, 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 it's ubiquitous. But you it's, can't escape it. Yeah, it's caricature politics, right? It's, it, or analysis. Uh, I, I spoke to someone the other day, and I think I mentioned to you before, I live in Gary and everything. So you've got a lot of old lefties around here, you know, that came into industry back in the, you know, back in the day, and then, uh, you know, re-came into it in the 1960s. Uh, so you've got some old left here. And, I, you know, I saw a couple of people and I was just chatting with him <laughs> on the street. I said, hey, what's going on? Where's the peace movement? <laughs> and as they're kind of reflecting on it, what the lady said to me was, uh, and it was kind of revealing as I thought about it. She said, well, most of the young people now are into the uh, uh, environmental, you know, 
and uh, blah blah blah. You know. I mean, well, I mean, kind of I know what she means, but like most of the young, I mean, I don't want to be crude, but most young left-oriented activists today are not going to be into foreign policy or abortion stuff. They're going to be into personal identity stuff. Yes, I mean, exactly, hence, exactly. hence the humongous George Floyd protests, right? I mean, I'll let, sorry, I'll just, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll let you finish your point, but just yeah, real yeah. quick. I was in London uh, in, in April, and I went to a Stop the War Coalition <laughs> meeting, right? It was about Ukraine. You know, this is the uh, organization that Jeremy Corbyn uh, was the chair of, um, you know, and it's, uh, you know, fairly well known. And so I went to this little meeting in uh, North London. It was about, I don't know, 25 people, and everyone was like 50 or over. And, you know, there were no young yes. people there, more or less, That's you know? Right. <laughs> um, and, but I guarantee you, if they had a meeting on something to do with, I don't know, systemic racism or whatever, uh, there would have been a bigger youth turnout. But anyway, go on. Well, you know, without getting too, you know, deep in the weeds here and everything, it just began to remind me of, uh, of uh, back when you had the so-called new left. You know, and, uh, and the new left had rejected these crass uh, working class folks, which they still reject today, you know, because they were half of them were racist or they weren't enlightened enough, you know, and the revolution was going to be led by some lump and proletariat uh, 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 faction of young people, you know. Uh, but you, you say, what's the utility? Whenever I look at things like that, I say, oh, what does this do for people? And what you saw at that time was people drifted from rather than challenging around real uh, urban issues, community issues, you know, other than a certain amount of racism or something. They, they were kind of locked out of the African-American community. So they began to roll into anti-imperialism, which was always nice because, you know, those poor people thousands of miles away here encapsulate innocence and the U.S. encapsulate the bad thing. So my, my point is that the, that the politics adjust for, to the inclination, which is that... Uh, you know, you've got to find the the purity of the of the good and evil, and you can't act in uh, in these uh, gray situations. You know, I mean, the point is, it doesn't make any difference if fucking like, Putin's an asshole. Well, there's a lot of assholes around the world, <laughs> but we, we don't go jacking on all of them. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, uh, I'm 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 increasingly convinced that like one of the chief <laughs> failures in uh, reasoning that. Uh, explains so much of this, the confusion around, especially this issue, you know, on the, in the foreign policy debate, but also other issues. This is the one I haven't happened to be focusing on lately, is the inability of so many people to separate like their moralistic judgments from right. their like dispassionate analytical judgments. So, for example, right, not to use the most obvious example, but this one happens to be <laughs> available to me. There were Hitler said correct things that the U.S. was incorrect about in the run up to Pearl Harbor. That's just true. And I'm talking about three things in particular. It's these three oh, incidents of naval warfare that the U.S. <laughs> initiated against Germany. Hitler correctly described the providence of those incidents when he declared war on the United States, whereas Roosevelt deceived the public about those three incidents. Now. Right. Can, can, do people have the maturity to accept that to be the case without interpreting that as some kind of endorsement of Hitler or that 
anybody who says that therefore loves Hitler or opposes America or whatever. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't see a much of a, of a capacity to do that. And similarly today, you know, yeah. P- uh, Putin did the speech last week where, you know, I don't know, a good portion of it seems like it was li- it could have been lifted from any like Chomsky essay of the past several decades. Yeah. And, you know, do people have the emotional and you know, maturity that, or the dispassionate reasoning abilities where they can read some of that speech and say, yeah, that just seems qualitatively correct in, in what it's asserting uh, without that needing to mean that they're pro-Putin or they're endorsing the war in Ukraine or whatever? I don't know. I don't see that ability to disentangle these emotionalistic, moralistic impulses from like the analytical dispassionate impulse that you need actually to, to do adult reasoning. Um, and I, yeah, think, and that's I think that's a, that's a huge problem. problem. The, the adult reasoning is, is missing. Look, it's like traveling on about democracy and not recognizing that that requires accommodation. You know, you can't be in a democracy where some people are evil and some people are good. And that's the, that's the binary that doesn't work. I mean, sooner or later, we accommodate people, even if they believe in babies or they killing babies is a right. You know, somehow you got to balance that out. That's what you do in a democratic system. Uh, in authoritarian, under authoritarian rules, some people are just bad <laughs> and they've got yeah. to be eliminated. Anyway, uh, but, but there's an interesting uh, scream in there and I'm still trying to puzzle out on what did it, why people are just. I mean, so easily convinced. I mean, let me leave you with this, and you can answer it or talk about it when I'm gone. Uh, you know, we keep saying Putin's threatened to use nuclear weapons. I'm still looking for the quote where he does that. He just said that he repeats their uh, doctrine, which everybody knows if you paid attention to this, that uh, they would use nuclear weapons if, if attacked. Uh, in, within their geographic boundaries. Now, well, he went out of his way. Went out of his way to cite the precedent of Hiroshima. I mean, you're right that he didn't. He didn't explicitly say, "I hereby threaten the United States with nuclear reprisal" or whatever. Uh, but I, th- I think. I mean, I don't think it's unfair to extrapolate a threat. Uh, you know, Just look, like I mean, the, the U.S. makes plenty of these threats as did well. He threaten right? to use, so, did he threaten to use gas? Because we keep talking about that. I think these are little things that are injected into the language. And the next thing you know, no one questions it. Uh, It's it's Um, just there. Oh, of course. I mean, I I don't know. I I, I think a threat, I mean, I think threats can be communicated in different ways, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he didn't verbalize explicitly a threat. I'm here by threatening the United States with nuclear reprisal, right? But that's not what you need to say in order to issue a threat. I think that's... But you don't um, need to. You know he's got he's got a nuclear arsenal. Why are we? Well, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I think it's perfectly fair to extrapolate that's... from the speech and from other events, including the behavior of the U.S. By the way, both. Right. You know, it's not. I mean, the, the the thing I think is misleading uh, along these lines is when people say, "Oh, the reason that there's a nuclear threat right now is exclusively and solely because of Putin." Well, no. I mean, of course, Putin's a factor, right? But. What is he threatening to retaliate for? Do you think it's, it could possibly be what U.S. policy has been doing in Ukraine? Yeah. What other reason would he have to be, be you know, uh, conveying threats against the U.S. just because he, you know, threw a uh, dart on a map and it happened to land on the U.S.? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's very odd, uh, generally. 
but uh, look, thanks. I'll, I'll let you go. I'll let some. Uh, yeah. All right. Thanks, Phil. Uh, uh, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and uh, we'll do a, a bit of an abbreviated section uh, session, I guess, today. Uh, you know, Richard's away. So uh, we'll reconvene soon and uh, talk to you later. All right. Take care.